down because you were hoping for something better. Um, but we're going to solve all your problems with some perspective. So let me, let me give you some reality that I think is true for all of you guys. Um, I can't stand mosquitoes. Anybody is like, mosquitoes are God's lovely creatures. Raise your hand. Yeah, no. so, I don't, so you're all with me. Nobody likes mosquitoes. So I can't stand mosquitoes. Correspondingly, this has been well documented here if, if you listen to pe- messages in the past. But I, I've been wanting a boat for a long time. And so uh, there's a little boat that, that I've, I don't need a big fiberglass, you know, 200 horsepower motor. I don't need all that. I'm just looking for like a like, like $1,000, $900,000 small boat just to kind of get out on the water. But I haven't been willing thus far to part with the money. And so, um, so I don't have a boat yet because I just refuse to spend the eight $900 it's going to take me. But last summer, last summer I spent about $100 on Bug Zapper. I probably spent another $50 on all kind of candles and spray to keep bugs away. Um, we spent at like $70 a pop. We had some guy spray some magic white mist around the yard so that the, uh, so that the mosquitoes stay away. And so I have spent, I'm halfway to the boat just keeping mosquitoes out of the yard. If it weren't for mosquitoes, I would have a boat. <laughs> but... I started thinking, and so I looked this up. I, I said, what would it take for there to be no mosquitoes? Like, like, what if they did not exist? Here's some of the things that would happen. So apparently, um, all the small fish that exist in the area would begin to decline in population because they eat mosquitoes. And so they begin to decline in population when they begin to decline. The bigger fish that feed on the smaller fish begin to decline. And so pretty soon, uh, the population of fish and other things that rely on fish as part of their ecosystem begin to decline. And so according to the study that I read, fishing with anything other than a net would be pretty useless because the fish population would be so low. Um, fish would be really expensive to eat and to get, and it would erode a lot of other stuff. So that would happen. It would hurt the bird population, which is pretty interesting. Uh, The bird population does something called nutrient cycling. If anybody knows anything about biology, some of this is wrong for certain. I didn't know exactly what I was reading, but anyway. It's something to do with nutrient cycling. So birds are involved in nutrient cycling, and they eat a lot of mosquitoes, and if they lose one of the main things that they eat, then they begin to decline in population. We get less nutrient cycling, so that means the soil is not as fertile. It's hard to go grow crops, and all of a sudden crops are more expensive to grow, and food is more expensive now. So no mosquitoes, food is more expensive. The last thing says if we were actually to do it, Here's what it would take to eradicate mosquitoes. We just cover a wide range of topics here. Um, here's how we could get rid of them. We would have to get rid of, drain all the swamps, lose all the wetlands. It would take, we'd have to get rid of all that in order to actually get rid of mosquitoes. You guys may know that if we got rid of all that, the city would, would be, un, we would have this kind of damage to our levee system. We'd be unrepairably Uh, exposed to tidal surge, and if we lose all that stuff, and we wouldn't have time if we got rid of the mosquitoes to do all the things that it would take to keep the city safe, and pretty soon we'd have flooding and we'd be below sea level. So no more city. So in short, we could get rid of the mosquitoes, but we'd have to get rid of ourselves too. And in light of all that, you know mosquitoes really aren't that bad. I think I can deal with a couple mosquitoes here and there. And how did I get to that perspective? How did I get to that? It's just a little bit of perspective. 
And as I began to understand a little bit of the bigger picture, all of a sudden, it's not quite so bad to have them around. And perspective always changes things. Almost all of our spiritual problems, things like doubt, apathy, unhappiness, insecurity, all the things that make bad situations that much worse, they come from an improper perspective of God. Primarily a perspective of God that is just way too small. And when we see, when God, when our perspective of God is just too incredibly small, it makes all of our problems worse. Here's what a small view of God does. When we don't see God for the big God that He is, it leads us asking questions of Him when bad things happen. And ultimately, we decide, we see that God is not enough. When we see God as just little and incomplete. And so what I want to do is is I want to spend like three weeks trying to capture a bigger view of God. Solomon calls that thing the fear of God. Accurately seeing how big God is, Solomon calls it the fear of God. And this is what he says about the fear of God. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And this is the step that I've tried to skip for a lot of years. I don't take the time to see how big God is and how, how much greater His plan is than mine and all those things. I skip right to wanting knowledge. You guys do that? You say something like, God, give me understanding. I don't understand why I've got to go through this. I don't understand why this is happening to me. I don't understand why this is happening to somebody else. You get to bigger problems. God, why is there hell at all? I mean, if you're really that powerful and you can really make anything happen, why does any of that have to happen? Why does there have to be war at all? Like, why do we even have to deal with that if God is so strong and so powerful? And so I skip right to wanting all the wisdom and all the knowledge and all the understanding, but I don't get the fear first. And when I don't take the time to see how big God is and I just want some answers, man, it challenges my faith. And then I have questions that I can't answer. And so I just want to jump through and and look at and get a perspective of just how great and how big God is. So there's a place in Scripture where a guy, he has more questions of God. He asked God more questions than anybody ever has. But here's the pretty interesting thing. He asked a ton of questions of God, more so than anybody else. But here's what's pretty unique. In this situation, God responded. And God responded with some questions of his own, 64 questions to be exact. God responds and asks this guy some questions. Look, Molly asked me questions all the time that stumped me. Um, For one, the why questions, where you get the series of whys, you know, but why, but why, but why, but why? And in the end, I'm just like, look, I don't know, chocolate milk is just brown, you know? Like, like I don't, you know, she just keeps going and keeps going, and I got no idea, you know, how to give her the answer. She stumps me constantly. At work, when I'm in a meeting and uh, and I don't know the answer, I have this go-to, and this is what I usually say. I write this down on the paper so that I can say it and sound smart. I say, in this initial phase, uh, that kind of thing has not been included in our scope of research. (laughs) I say that constantly. And what I really mean is, uh, we didn't think of that. And so I don't even know what you're talking about. And, uh, And I find some way to get around it. But constantly people ask me questions that I don't know the answer to. Imagine you sit down with God and he says, okay, 
I'll answer your question. But first, let me ask you 64 of my own. And man, talk about stumping you. So that's what we have in Job 38. So Job 38, that's where we're going to jump in. Let me give you some background while you flip over to Job 38. Here's some pretty interesting things about this. We don't have any idea what time period Job lives in. We can guess based on a couple things, but we don't really know. We don't know when he lives. Um, We don't know much about him. Um, But apparently, so scholars try to decide, why did this guy not tell us anything about Job? Why, why Why didn't we get anything about Job? And it's because... Um, we're not supposed to know those things. And, 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 you know, the author doesn't want us to get fixated on where does he live, what's going on, and all those things. He wants us to see that there are some universal questions that Job asked, and there are some universal questions that God asked that are just as relevant now as they ever have been. And so these questions are, it's more about seeing the questions that everyone asks. That's sort of what we're looking at in Job. Here's the only thing that the Scripture tells us about Job. And in Job 1.1, it says, Job was a blameless and upright man. And that's all we know about him. Blameless, upright man. And, and all that means, that's just the ancient way of saying he is a really nice dude. He was just a really nice guy. He probably like cleaned his plate when he was a kid, and he said, yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. And he gave a tithe at the church. I'm sure he ate healthy and exercised reasonably, but not too much to be a fanatic. And, you know, all those kind of things. Like, he, in every way, he's a guy who does things pretty well. Probably dresses nice and wears skinny jeans. <laughs> um, that's funny to me. Um, so anyway, in Job, we meet Job. Tells us he's a blameless, he's a pretty nice guy. And then uh, we skip from meeting Job, and all of a sudden we become a fly on the wall at, like, this heavenly staff meeting. And, and God's there, and a whole bunch of angels are there, and, and the other person that's there is the devil. And the devil's like, you know, I see your guy Job down there. But, you know, Job only follows you because you give him everything. If you gave me everything I wanted, I'd probably follow you too. I added that, but I'm sure that was said in there. Um, but, man, he is just absolutely like Job. Only That's the only reason he's for you. And so God says, okay. We'll take everything he's got. Don't take his life, but take everything he's got, and we'll see if you're right. And this is the part where I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I feel like God did this to me a few years ago. You know, like, like, like did, is God up there, like, take everything from him, and then let's just see how he, how he does. I think there were some tests where the devil was like, he only follows you because he got an A. And God's like, well, let's give him six Fs in a row. Um, Man, sometimes uh, the the idea of God doing that seems crazy. But that's what happens. So everything Job loves is taken away. Ironically, he takes away, he said, you can take away everything that he loves, everything that's dear to him, but don't take his life. And you know what doesn't get taken? Three friends and his wife. So that doesn't speak very well for their relationship. But anyway, takes everything that's dear to him. He doesn't take three friends. He doesn't take his wife. Um, The next 30-plus chapters in this entire book are Job's friends saying, Look, Job, you sinned, and and that's why all this bad stuff's happening to you, because this is how God works. So it is what it is. What'd you do? And Job's like, Well, yeah, I definitely sin sometimes, but but nothing to deserve this. So, So that's not what's going on. And Job spends most of the time being right, but then he finally gets to a point where he begins to ask some questions. And he's like, you know, I know that God is good, but I just wonder about 
this and this and this and this. And some of the questions that we get to about life and about suffering and about some of the things that happen around us. And finally, Job begins to ask them questions. And in verse 38, after 38 chapters of on and on, God shows up and look what he says. So, uh, verse 38. Verse, uh, chapter 38, verse 1. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Jacob, uh, then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, and he said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Some, some place says, Who disturbs my counsel with words without knowledge? It's saying, Who's saying all this dumb stuff to me? Verse 3. Bra- I love this verse. This is God saying, Brace yourself like a man. I will question you now and you will answer me. Where were you, Job, when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Or, what were, or on what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Skip, skip all the way down to verse 28. Ask him some other pretty hard questions. He says, does the rain have a father? I mean, who knows the answer to that? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens when the waters become hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen? I mean, who knows the answers to where rain comes from? I mean, other than the clouds, right? Uh, Skip down to verse 39. Job, do you hunt the prey for the lioness? And satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? And I think this is where Job probably says, uh, that was not included in my initial scope of this research phase. There's just no way on earth that he can answer any of these questions. And what God is doing is showing some perspective. And he's saying, Job, if you can't get all the simple things about nature, how on earth do you think you can understand all these eternal things? You see, Job and his friends, they're working off the assumption that we understand God. We understand how He works. we got a pretty good idea of what God does and when He does it. And and so they're, they're operating under that understanding. And God says, no, you don't understand things as simple as, as how to create constellations. That's simple stuff. Now you think you can understand eternity. Um, to understand, here's the idea. To understand infinite justice, you need to have infinite perspective. To understand all that God is doing in the world, you need God's infinite perspective. At the end of chapter 40, God basically says to Job, after all that, he says, See, Job, this is pretty hard. You guys ever seen uh, Bruce Almighty, the great theological mind, Jim Carrey, um, when he, uh, he decides he's going to answer prayers and uh, he can't figure out how to do it, so he just clicks reply all and, uh, and he says yes to everybody's prayers and he feels like he did something really good and then everybody won the lottery and, uh, and they were all super excited, but then they all won, so they got $17 a piece. And then there was riot in the streets because they were so mad at the corrupt lottery system. They all thought they were going to be super wealthy. And, and God shows up and says, see, it's just not really all that easy. And, and I think that's what, that's what God's saying to Job. Look, Job, 
I think you're seeing, since you couldn't answer one of my 64 questions, not even one, I didn't even get to your stuff, you couldn't even answer one of them, it's just really not that easy. And here's what's crazy about Job. And after that happens, the book ends. And Job doesn't get any answers to any of his questions. We don't know why God decided to let Job suffer. We don't know any of that kind of stuff. But here's Job's perspective. Job gets all the way to the end. He doesn't get one answer to one question. He is no closer to knowing than he was at the beginning. But all of a sudden, he's okay with it. Why is he okay with it? Because now he had some perspective. Now he began to see how big God is. The whole thing shows us three things about God. So so three things about God that this whole picture of Job shows us, especially especially, uh, chapters 38 through 42. And the first one is this. The first one is that God is sovereign. That's just a fancy way of saying God is in total control. God spent two chapters saying, look, I created the earth. I created all the beasts of the earth. I control them all. I don't let ostriches fly. It's really in there. And he says all kind of stuff like I'm in total control. He spends two chapters telling us how he's in total control. He says, I'm in control of things you don't even know about. He says in in verse 38, this is pretty interesting. It says, God waters the land where no one lives. He waters the land where no one lives. Why would God do that? Because it's just not all about you and me. And and God is in total control of things that we never come across. And somewhere in some remote part of the world where no human has ever been, there's a flower that's going to grow, and it's going to get just the right amount of sunlight and just the right amount of, of rain, and it's going to grow up, and it's going to bloom, and it's going to be beautiful, and then it's going to die, and it's going to go back into the earth, and it's going to, and it's going to enrich the soil, and, and another one's going to grow, and that's going to happen for a long, long, long time, and no one is ever going to see it, but God is in control of it. And God spends a whole lot of time just saying, I am in total control. And that doesn't answer why we have to suffer. That doesn't tell Job why he has to suffer. And maybe it even gives him more questions to know that God's in total control, but but I, I still have to suffer. But the reality that you see, first and foremost, is that God has never lost it. He's never working out a plan in your life and all of a sudden somebody's about to to come into your path to change things and that person's crossing the street and gets hit by a bus and God's like, oh man, now I've got to start all over and work out a new plan. No, he's always in total control. And so when you feel like everything is spiraling out, God is he's just working all things out. Totally sovereign in total control. But the second thing, that this passage teaches us that I think kind of helps explain the, the first one is this. But in addition to being in total control, God's perspective is infinite. See, we don't get what's going on here. We don't have this huge perspective from, from eternity past. We don't get all that, but God does. He asked Job, hey Job, where were you when I started the earth? You know, how do you start an earth? You tell me if you understand that. Think for a minute. Um, I, I read this. This other pastor wrote this. This is incredible stuff. You want to get an idea of God's infinite knowledge? Check this out. Um, astronomers, they estimate that the number of stars 
that are out there in total. Uh, now, they, they estimate the galaxy is ever expanding, but at a particular point in time, just like a few months ago, they estimate that there are around 3,000 billion trillion. The number is, is like septillion. There are that many, 3,000 septillion stars are out there. And if you're like me, you know, like, like you know, million, billion, trillion, it all kind of starts to sound the same. So let me give you a little bit of perspective, okay? One million seconds ago, what do you think you were doing? You may know? How long ago was one million seconds? It was about uh, 11 days ago. 11 days ago, that was one million seconds. I got no idea. Uh, 11 days ago is one million seconds. How about a billion seconds ago? You may want to take a guess? Billion seconds. Anybody doing like super quick math? 60 seconds in a minute. Okay, here you go. Um, uh, One billion seconds ago happens to be 31 years and eight months ago, which ironically is almost exactly when I was born. Uh, One billion seconds ago, 31 years and eight months ago, Saved by the Bell was a hot new TV show sometime in the mid-80s. How about a trillion seconds ago? So we went from 11, 11 days to 31 years. A trillion seconds ago was the year 29,672 B.C. So you begin to get some perspective on how much more a trillion is than a billion. It's a lot. Sean Connery had just started making the James Bond movies. Just kidding. Uh, It was a long, long time ago, 29,000 B.C. That was a trillion seconds ago. And now we get this number that says there are three thousand septillion stars as of a few months ago. Suffice it to say, how many stars are out there? A bunch, a bunch. Like there's a whole lot of them out there. And all of those stars are each putting out roughly the same amount of energy as a trillion atom bombs every second. Again, numbers I can't even comprehend. I just know that they're a lot. There's this um there's this, this one in our own solar system called Eta, I don't know how to say it, Eta Carinae. Um, it's in the Milky Way. It's five million times brighter than our sun. And they're all out there. The Hubble telescope sending back these infrared images of, of galaxies that we don't even know about. They're like super far away. And, and, and they're so far away that, that we estimate they're about 12 billion light years away. You know what that means? That means if you got on a a, a ship and you traveled at the speed of light for 12 billion years, then you'd get there. I don't know how fast the speed of light is, but I know that when I turn the switch on, the light comes on super fast. And all of a sudden, I can see everything in the room. Okay, So it's it's a pretty long ways away. Contrast that with this. There was a guy the other day, I saw the video on YouTube, I was looking up some electrical, electro video to show my students. There was this guy, really a small-time genius, posted a video on YouTube where he used a bicycle to charge a 12-volt battery so he could camp off-grid. He had to pedal for like an hour to fully charge the battery. Incredible, right? Um, In an instant, God created that universe we just described. In an instant. And you, I'm reading this guy, write this stuff. And he didn't, he didn't watch the YouTube video, but that was my own perspective. But man, I'm like, I, I just didn't, I did, sometimes I don't grasp how big and powerful and incredible God is. But that's pretty big and powerful and incredible. I can't fold a fitted sheet. <laughs> it just winds up in a ball, you know, if you ever tried to do it. 
man, I am so finite, and these are the things that God is doing. Really, really clearly, I just want to say, God knows more than us, and he's infinitely more powerful than us, and he gets the bigger picture, and his perspective is infinite. Do we suffer and not know why it happens? Absolutely. Does God have an infinitely bigger perspective on why it may be necessary? Yes. Mother Teresa said this. She said, um, compared to eternity, the worst things on earth are like nothing more than a bad night in a cheap hotel. You get that? Compared to eternity, the worst things on earth are like nothing more than a bad night in a cheap hotel. You ever had something really terrible happen? Like there was a chance you could die, and less than an hour later it's funny to you? Yeah, I mean, that, that's like the suffering that happens here on earth. It's so finite and so small in perspective of eternity that if God said, I have a bigger purpose that may involve some suffering for you, but look, it's going to be like a bad night in a cheap hotel in a hundred-year lifespan. You'd say, well, God, I think that's worth it. Man, he's got this, this perspective of eternity that's just incredible. The last thing we see in this passage that I think sort of brings both of those pieces together God is, is, is all-powerful. He's got this, this perspective of, of eternity. And the thing that puts all those pieces together, I believe, that, that helps me wrap my mind around suffering and, and helps solve all my problems is this. And, and the third thing is that we see is that God's purpose is good. So in the midst of being all-powerful, in the midst of having the perspective of eternity, we know that in each and every situation, God has a good purpose. Imagine this, the devil came to God and he said, you know, I'm really going to get, I'm going to get one over on God because I'm going to show him that even this most faithful servant, he'll fall under pressure. And he's got this great plan to take everything from Job and really show God. And what happens? God put on, Job gets put on this display and now all of a sudden, how does that flesh out? Job is an influential guy that's doing great things in his life. And, and, and at the end of the book, he gets restored sevenfold. So now he's a great guy with, with seven times more influence than he had before. Now there's a, there's a book written about it that's included in the best-selling book of all time. And then for the past few thousand years, we've been reading this book and being encouraged and seeing how big God is. It could not have backfired more for the devil. And God is, his purpose is absolutely good. And he took this small bad thing that the devil wanted to do and he turned it into something incredibly good. And what I would say to you and to me definitively is that if you are a believer, God is doing the exact same things with your struggles. And sometimes God lets us suffer for a few different reasons. Sometimes God lets us suffer in order to correct us, you know, like bring us back to him. He sort of lets us feel the weight of whatever is, is, is we deserve sometimes. And he says, I'm going to use this to get you back to me. We see that in Jonah, okay? So, so Jonah runs, gets swallowed by a fish. It's pretty terrible for him. And, uh, and that's God saying, I'm going to let you feel the weight of, of what you deserve, and maybe that will bring you back to me. That's one reason he lets us suffer. Um, sometimes he lets us suffer so that he can work salvation in the lives of other people. Right? That's what happens in the life of Joseph. Joseph goes through terrible suffering that he doesn't deserve. He gets put in jail, didn't deserve that. He gets sold into slavery by his brothers, didn't deserve that. 
but yet he's able to bring salvation to all of Egypt and to much of Israel. And so God used the suffering of him to do great things for other people. Sometimes that's what's happening with us. And sometimes God just lets us suffer so that we can love him more. This is what you see in the life of Job. As he lets Job suffer, and, and, and Job in the end loves God so much more and has such a, a greater God perspective than he had to begin with. Look at the very end. Uh, this is Job's response. After all this stuff happened, this is what Job says. He says, God, um, you ask me this question. Um, who is this? That This is uh, chapter 42, verse 3. He says, God, you asked me this question. You said, who is it that obscures my plans without knowledge? Remember, God said that in verse 38. And he says, surely I spoke of things that I did not understand, things that were too wonderful for me. And in the end, he says, oh, God, I was totally wrong. Verse 5, he said, you know, my ears had heard of you, God, but now my eyes have seen you. And therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. And he says, God, you just gave me this little bitty glimpse of how big you are, and now I just got to get as low as I can into the dust and the ashes, because, God, now I see just how big you are. Job asked God for some answers, and instead God just gave him some perspective. No answers, just perspective. And, and on seeing the sovereignty of God, like God's power, and getting a glimpse of God's infinite wisdom, and seeing the reality that God's purposes are totally good, Job says, man, God, I take back what I said. And I take back any, even in light of every terrible thing that's happened to me, I take it all back. I don't need answers. I'm just in awe of you, and I'm glad to be a part of your story. No answer to his suffering, but everything has changed. The greatest, greatest thing about saying yes to Jesus, you know, when, when we say, Jesus, I'm, I'm turning from sin and, I'm, and I'm, I'm just choosing to follow you and you are the Savior in my life, the greatest thing about that is not having all the answers or understanding all the reasons, but the greatest thing about it is getting to live in the promise of knowing that you are under the protection of an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, infinitely good God. And that is the answer to all my problems. God, we thank you for that reality.